Namaste. So at part of the series on writings of Shirobindo, we are reading portions from essays on the Gita. So as we see, um, the Gita can be put into different sections. The first two sections basically are about, primarily the first section is about Arjuna's dilemma and Sri Krishna's rebuke. And in that rebuke, he also gives a very interesting logic about very rational, it's a very rational philosophical work, the Gita. That's why it has such a great appeal to the modern mind. Though it contains the profoundest spiritual wisdom and the path, but it proceeds very rationally and it tells Arjuna that you are a Kshatriya, it's your Sudharam to fight and either you will fall nobly or conquer and enjoy the kingdom. So this was a very um, proper aim for a Kshatriya. But avoiding the fight was not the option. And then it describes that life and death are nothings, which is so true. Even rationality explains, if there is nothing which survives death, then why you know, make such a to-do about it? And if something survives after death, then why make a to-do about it? As simple as that. <laughs> because in any case, in that case, there is the immortal soul within us. But at the same time, if there is nothing, then why you are feeling so despondent and about death? Which is something natural. It's a natural process. But this is only where Gita sets the note. And then it takes us through a series of um, um, chapters where the highest spiritual wisdom of that age is brought together and synthesized. So, so in India, we will see two types of spiritual uh, thought. One is which takes an extreme specialized path. And through that path, it explores the divine. But it becomes a very specialized path, which slowly it gets disconnected from all other tendencies, paths, like a lonely mountain uh, climb. But on the other side, time to time, we see these grand trunk roads and the mighty rivers. We join these different, we try to synthesize. So there are these two tendencies simultaneously. For instance, we see in the Vedas, Vedas themselves are very synthetic scripture. There is a synthesis in them. And in the early Upanishads, we see that tendency. But then subsequently, when different paths of yoga came into existence, we see the tendency to specialize. But the Gita again tries to bring them together. Again we see in Puranas, there is a tendency, this Purana, that Purana, where each God is taken to his absolute. But the Tantras try to synthesize them in the great vision of the Divine Mother, Shakti. Whether you take Vishnu Puran or whether you take the Shiv Puran, either of the methods, uh, you have to lean back upon the Divine Mother. So in Tantra, there is a synthesis of the world and God. Because they don't, um, they accept that world is the joy in the world, which must, the powers of the world, it must be explored fully in your way toward the divine. And then again we see that new material flows into the um, research laboratory called Earth and Shirobindo once again integrates it and creates a new synthesis. This tendency in India um, of not just all-inclusive, but second, very wide Catholic tendency and at the third level evolutionary process every time a new material comes it takes into itself and creates something higher and greater is its real boon 
unlike scriptures which are born at a point of time, get fixed after a certain period of time when their work is over and then if they continue, they are either like fossils or empty shells from which spiritual truths have escaped. But in India, because of this vivifying spirit, uh, which keeps on giving rebirth to the scriptures or takes their essence, truth, while discarding the kernel. It, it's a wonderful tendency and the Gita is a masterpiece which shows this tendency. For instance, in the Gita, in the period of the Gita, there is this um, too much, again, like in every age, uh, suddenly the Vedas were being understood as you know, doctrine, doctrinal things and ritualistic sacrifices. So every day you have the yajna, fire is lit, you do homa with the actual ghee and all that. Now, not denying its occult place, but um, in the Vedas you will see that there is a tendency, you, you have a higher paradise. There are aspects in the Veda like that. Say so you go to the paradise and that's why even in Mundakopanishad we see, they say that the three Vedas are the, belong to the lower knowledge. And if somebody reads it, one would wonder that what is it, what are they saying? But the higher knowledge is uh, the knowledge of the stainless Brahman. So the Gita also at one point will say that Vedvadins, those who are busy with the ritualistic karm kand and understanding of the Vedas in this way. So the Gita doesn't amplify, but Shurabindu uh, you know, reveals to us that what is the truth behind Sri Krishna saying that, well, those who follow these heavenly gains through the practice of the Vedas um, are like people in a small little uh, vessel. They are trying to again, you know, pick up water from a vast ocean. Whereas those who follow the path of yoga, they have the ocean itself. So it regards that practice of the Vedas ritualistically for um, just these otherworldly gains as something very inferior. So if one picks up this aspect, one may conclude that the, the, the Gita is actually decrying the Vedas. But it's not true. Later on, the Gita itself brings out the deeper truth of Vedas and Upanishads and reveals that. So one should be very careful in interpreting any of these great scriptures. The same thing applies to Shirobindo's works. That you pick up a sentence from one place and you will make a you know, meaningless uh, uh, understanding or a dogma out of it. But when you see the totality, that's why the mother said that Shrabindo has to be read in totality. You have to see, read all that he has written on a particular subject. Then you will understand what is the main essence and the drift. Which of course is not an easy task and that's why we have things like the All India Magazine. <laughs> so, but purpose is this because he has to read by subjects and not by books. They are mother's words. So again we see that the Gita contains within itself something very interesting and as far as I know, it is the first scripture. There is, There was once a little, um, not debate, but someone remarked about, you know, Hindu dharma and, you know, though they are part of the larger Sanatan context, but there are people who try to separate because they will get advantages and separate country and all those things. So they were saying that, you know, we are, we don't have these gods or a murti and we worship. So I said, yes, but you worship a book. And you keep the book in some holy place which you regard as holy. And then I said that, do you know what Sri Krishna has said in the Gita about holy books? So he said, oh, what does he say? I said, he says, go beyond the scripture written or 
यू हैव हर्ड और रिटर्न स्क्रिप्चर बोथ यू हैव टू गो बियॉन्ड शब्द ब्रह्मति वर्तते एंड द लॉजिक ऑफ इट इज सो ब्यूटिफुल दैट नो स्क्रिप्चर और ऑल द स्क्रिप्चर्स ऑफ द वर्ल्ड वेदास उपनिषद्स गीता बाइबल कुरान गुरु ग्रंथ साहब टेक इट एनी बुक इन द वर्ल्ड कैन एवर कंटेन ऑल द इन्फिनिट ग्लोरीज ऑफ गॉड बिकॉज ही इज इन्फिनिट it also opens the door to an evolutionary possibility that there are new truths which will get revealed why do we want to close the gates of the divine at a certain point of time so this is something very beautiful the gita says within itself that shabd brahmati varte they go beyond all that you have heard all that you have read though it is in a certain context but that context applies to the gita as well and shubindu speaks about it that at the end these words are not meant for dialectical discussions they are not meant for holding a seminar or writing a book on gita made easy they are meant to pick up those pearls of wisdom which can strengthen our soul make it awake conscious and help us walk through this life towards the great summits that is the purpose of the gita in fact of any scripture they are not meant for dialectical discussions that we turn them today so once this background is set so we see in the gita the various kinds of synthesis so the first six chapters it tries to synthesize vedanta yoga and sankhya they were prevalent during that time then he takes us through the gospel of works and culminates it in devotion and then finally this devotion he takes to the supreme secret so it's very interesting the way the gita develops its um philosophy and the wisdom which is so practical so in the beginning if we see the gita speaks about sankhya uh, it's very interesting because um, sankhya is regarded by many as a kind of atheistic philosophy and for a reason because uh, it is not theism for sure because there is in it a purusha the indestructible but he is just like a witness luminous witness that's it you can't connect with him theistic philosophies means you connect with him it may look like dualism but it's not dualism because there are completely two different principles in dwaitvad you have the souls are from the one but you cannot completely fuse with with the divine you can live in a certain status in closeness of the divine like narada that's dwait here there are two completely different aspects so one is about existence so that's why sankhya philosophy appeals a lot sankhya literally is about numbers numerals so it analyzes and discriminates tries to understand what is the composition of a being so what is the composition of a being so it says that there are various components one is that there are karma indriyas through which we act then there are gyana indriyas through which we receive all the information all the sense organs and karma indriya then you have the panch bhut through which all matter is constituted science says the same thing and these are not gross things but subtle principles for instance you see water the principle that dynamic kinetic energy that's why water is always symbolized as life the energy which flows that creates attractions and repulsions you see the principle of the fire principle it is the principle of heat and light which is inbuilt within everything the the energy the dynamism as such the principle of space which is about the vast expanse in which all things are held so it has all these uh, space then in space the stir starts and you have the vayu so vayu is that 
within this vast infinite space there is the stir of creation call it nad call it anything whatsoever and with that stir creation begins now this stir one stir will not make any form because it has gone expanding itself infinitely it will keep on pushing space further and further but this stir out of itself brings out many waves like you know from the ocean beds and these waves clash call and wrestle and come together combine so aerial principle so when we see that we see that there is a modification of this space itself and you have those very early forms but they cannot be stabilized because see air is constantly moving jostling collapsing but this is the first thing that nature does and these forces exist forces of attraction repulsion they all exist within nature then to give them some kind of fixity there has to be nucleus around which they do this you can't have a chaotic process so that nucleus becomes the principle of fire so it is a nucleus around which all this movement is taking place so you have first forms but they are still not stable so we have the whole atomic constitution described in these three principles so fire starts bringing these aerial principle around it so out of modifying the aerial principle we had we have the principle of fire then out of fire this this cannot create stable forms so out of fire what is born is the principle of um, air is movement and this is the principle of fluidity so this fluid principle is the water element so it makes it a little more viscous the forms become little more viscous they try to become solid but they are like uh, casper the you know so they are forms which which don't stay they are not stable forms so they are just flowing so out of atom you have molecules crystals they are beginning to you know so you see actually out of atom you have molecules but they are not stable structures you know so out of that the principle of water there is this principle of earth it stabilizes fixes it so if we really look at it it's so beautifully um, it's so logical science speaks about these uh, kinetic energy potential energy uh, forces of weak attraction and strong attraction then the electromagnetic impulsion which is like the fire principle inside and then finally the gravitational force or the force of cohesion which is the earth principle it stabilizes fixes forms so when we understand it so logical so sankhya is a very logical system but then that's prakriti so you have these five indriyas through which you receive five indriyas through which you act it creates for each uh, aspect you have a indriya which receives it so for the sound aspect you have the ear aerial aspect so it manifests sound and you have the ear to receive it for fire you have the sight so you see it you receive that light and energy comes through that then for the principle of water again you have the taste and then for the earth you have the smell and touch so this is how the entire thing proceeds which is so logical then you have to create individuality sankhya was analyzing but how are individuals form all this is okay but this is happening all over around in creation how are individual form so it brings in these three things mano buddha ahankar chitta niradam remember that sankracharya's phrase so you have the principle of mind man 
Then you have the principle of buddhi, the discerning intellect. It's in Sankhya, it is part of nature. So, man is these senses are creating an impression somewhere. So, there is a hub where they are creating an impression, and out of that, there is a perception of objects. And then the buddhi, the intellect, which discerns what these objects are. So, you have the man, buddhi, and then the sense of I, which comes through ahankar. And then it went on to say that nature itself operates through three modes of nature, and it's same thing we see in, in material science uh, forces of tamas, rajas, and uh, sattva. So, tamas force is there in atom, first law of Newton, law of inertia is there in atom. That's how things get fixed. Force of rajas, kinetic energy movement. Force of equilibrium and balance. So every atomic structure has a tendency to find its equilibrium. So if you see it's so logical actually, when you read Sangeville, what is left to really explain? But then who is experiencing all this? So it brought in the element of the Purusha. He is the witness. So what is the relation between Purusha and Prakriti? The Purusha may be involved in nature and experience itself as a mutable being. Or the purusha may come out of nature and become the witness. So these are these are the two possibilities of the purusha. Purusha is not purusha the way we understand, but that selfhood, if you want to put it. So when it is involved, and the same thing we see in the Upanishad Dwasupanna, one bird which is eating the fruits and the other one who is watching from above. <laughs> this reminds me of a little joke as an aside, uh, how these things can be misunderstood. So in uh, long back in Patiala, uh, maybe 30 years back, so I was talking about this Dwasuparna from the Upanishad. So there was a man, <laughs> what that intelligence must be, whatever, but after hearing Dwasuparna that there are two birds, one is eating the fruit, the other is watching. So he asked me, sir, I have a question. I said, yes, please tell me. He said, sir, that bird also must be wanting to eat. <laughs> I said, if it wants to eat, it will no more be that bird. It will become this bird. It will enter into this status. So he said, Achha. <laughs> very nice, big Achha. <laughs> so these are the two poises we can adopt. One is what is called as Anumanta. Anumanta is whatever nature is doing, it's science. Yeah, senses are driving us, we are driven in that direction. Anumanta. Soul's consent is needed for every act, Shubindu says in Savitri. But it's like an indifferent witness, signing. Okay, whatever nature says, I am taking you there, okay, sign, sign. It's like a blind king who is signing every edict. Dhritarashtra. Everybody takes his permission. But whatever Duryodhana says, Shakuni says, he ends up signing blindly. So, Anumanta. This is the first status of the soul. According to one understanding. And the other is Sakshi, when it becomes a witness. It says, nature will go on its own way, but I am a witness. Now, this is the first step in yoga. And Shubindu says that it's a very powerful step. The mother uses the term step back. And if you read the synthesis of yoga, Shubindu starts with this. And if you do that, just observe nature. And mother says, don't judge. If you judge, you'll be drawn into it. Good, bad, then you'll be drawn to, you know, oh, this is good, I must hold. Uh, this is bad, I must suppress. Then you'll, you're caught 
both good and bad conceptions will catch you in the play the mother says they prevent offering also because you know you don't want to see the bad things so you see them in others you can't see in yourself <laughs> bad is for others good is for me so they prevent but when the purusha is completely involved in it it experiences life like that so therefore there is duality this is good this is bad based on you know how it experiences this suffering this pleasure and pain all this it experiences when it becomes a witness it sees the whole play of nature so first thing is to watch this whole play without judging and if we watch it and are no more the anumanta anumanta is somebody who indifferently sanctions so if we no more act as an anumanta then after a while the tendency or the habit begins to become weaker and weaker and weaker first step of yoga so that's why shri krishna is you are caught in moha practice sakshi bhav it will become weaker and weaker and weaker so you'll see a tendency just going down but it it's not like in one day six months if you pick up one tendency or entire field of nature and this leads to liberation very first step so this liberation prepares us for a greater action in the world rather because many people say okay if there is no anumanta you are just a witness how will you act the yogin will become powerless man but the gita says no his action will be far more powerful yoga ha karma shu kaslam because he is no more moved by raga dvesha desires etc so he'll be moved in a much more powerful way i think the other day somebody had put this beautiful quote from shubhendu's essays human and divine the ideal yogin is no pent up force he acts in the world much more powerfully and integrally than the so this idea of the cave dwelling yogi who has become you know just redundant is not the way indian yoga conceived it but this is the first step to become a sakshi but sankhya stops here but the gita takes see how it synthesizes it says but yoga is greater this is important necessary there are other finer elements like sankhya believes in multiplicity of souls because it otherwise cannot explain if there is only one self then if one person ever withdrew everybody should be liberated also everybody should experience life in the same ways look how logically they went but we don't so there is multiplicity of souls but it could never explain it why how it came into existence so sankhya says we are just discerning analyzing and stating facts that's it why what is not our business this was sankhya complete division between purusha and prakriti so the yoga was just purusha should withdraw and become a sakshi so the gita takes us one step further what is the yoga it says when you have thus withdrawn your anumanta and sakshi now you have to go to the third level become isha so shubhendu in the synthesis speaks about anisha anisha is a indifferent signature he doesn't have the light anisha he is not lord so though he is supposed to be the lord we see these lines in savitri in the isha where shubhendu says the nature's instrument crowns himself her king so right now we are tossed and carried across by nature but there comes a time when we are freed and then we become king so this way gita brings in the element of yoga he says yes first two steps are right but there is something you have missed out there is the great being so that atheistic um, philosophy of sankhya 
atheistic not the way we understand that there is nothing but material it says there is a purusha but atheistic in the sense it doesn't believe in a being or a god to whom we can turn so it's regarded as atheistic so it says no there is this great being and we can turn to this great being and become fully our mind should be absorbed in him so the gita says that unless you do it you will never become completely free which is so true if we become only a witness you know this can go to any absurd extent you can't act in the world i i mean in one of the uh, shobindo bhavan in bangalore there's a man who was supposed to be you know watch over things so we had nice uh, in alsur bhavan so center so there were nice uh, chandan sandalwood trees and you're not supposed to cut them because they all belong to the state you cannot cut without permission of the state they fix the price everything you can't just cut and sell it so one day we went in the morning and saw true trees are gone so we asked this man who used to be there in the evening said what happened this is he said, i know they have been cut by some thieves who came you saw them yes so what were you doing i was witnessing this is not what witnessing means <laughs> so you see misapplication of truth is i was a witness I said, be a witness to yourself. <laughs> But this is how people understand. So the perfect release doesn't come just by witnessing. You have to go to the next level. To be the ish, you must be one with the ish. So the next great step is to be completely devoted in the mind. The mind must turn toward the eternal. So the Gita speaks of the three purushas. These are all the initial chapters that I'm speaking of. So the three purushas, which is another very unique aspect of the Gita. You have the sharobhav. Sharobhav is the same in the mutable. You are just a anumanta, anish. It's there. It's there. You are involved in it. Of course, the soul is there, but completely involved in nature. Sharobhav. Shar why? Because it's mutable. This world, which is totally changing, transient, anityama sukham, and yet the purusha ties itself to it. Mutable. So it experiences constant flux and flow of nature. yet it is purusha but it is in the this bhav shar purush so the gita says higher than the shar purush is akshar brahma paramam akshara that which doesn't fall its status is forever the same that is higher than the shar bhav so we have the mutable state of the purusha and the immutable in which it enters once it enters it cannot fall from there so this is the akshar bhav there was another very funny story about it about dara so dara sheik ibrahim he would sit and watch and one day somebody went into his room saw dara with two cigarettes in hand and mosquito repellent in the feet together that's how he would you know sit for meditation and be a witness he had that capacity not about cigarette but about witnessing so <laughs> this man sees there is a thief who you know his window is open he puts the hook up he has got a nice hook on a um a nice little rod huh bamboo so with that hook his shirt could be seen from below so he puts the hook takes the shirt brings it down and this man is watching uh, because he has entered the room so he, he, this man is seeing this happen and dara is also sitting there he is behind dara and he sees this event happen then he thought dara will react but dara says nothing then the second shot also goes <laughs> then it has dara he says yes i am watching 
what are you doing i am just wondering how he is how brilliant intelligent the man so you see it it does give you a release to an extent even foolishly when you do it all that you know ups and downs and hey reacting to things that doesn't happen so but akshar brahm beyond the akshara there is the uttama purusha this is the highest status that is possible for the soul that is the purushottama what is purushottama he holds the shar and the akshar both within himself that's why he is not separate he is distinct and yet he holds both of them so if the sharobhav and the akshar and the uttam purusha who holds the two states meaning thereby if we have to use the language of the uh, yoga he is a person who can enter into the mutable he can enter into the immutable and yet he is superior to them he is superior to all the contexts of nature but he can engage into the play that's then only you can if you are either caught in the play or you are separate you need a third state and that third state is to dwell in the purushottama one cannot become purushottama but one can dwell in the purushottama by dwelling in the purushottama one can enter into the mutable and the immutable at will so one is truly free that is the state of jivan mukta towards which the gita takes us so it says that yoga is greater and then he says you know arjuna i consider um, knowledge greater than works so i say sir now i am totally confused my question is to kill or not to kill <laughs> you tell me one thing i don't know now you are telling that uh, intelligence uh, into this uh, this is higher knowledge is greater than action so what am i supposed to do gather knowledge then shri krishna explains to him what is knowledge because we think by knowledge you have to renounce and therefore know so he gives the distinction between tyaga and sanyas he says yes knowledge is first because if you act without knowledge you will be foolish knowledge must be the base on which action must be based how to gather knowledge so traditionally because why arjuna is asking because the traditional idea is to get knowledge you have to go to the himalayas meditate upon a forest you have to abandon works so he says you don't have to abandon works to gain knowledge so what are we supposed to do you have to change yourself inwardly to gain knowledge while being engaged in works so arjuna says what are we supposed to do what do you mean so he explains what is known as the yoga of the intelligent will so this is how the sankhya and the yoga brought together so what is the intelligent will in man it is everybody we all have a little bit of intelligence and we all have a little bit of will but where is it diverted it is all the time driven by desires by the senses so the intelligent will gets bewildered so the gita describes the uh, image of the ratha you have the steeds which are the senses then you have the rein which is the mind mind holds these senses is the sixth sense and then you have the charioteer who is holding the rein itself that is the buddhi the discerning intellect and then you have the rathi the great self so it says this is the hierarchy of beings now imagine the charioteer just uh, not pulling the reins saying let the horses go in whatever direction now when a man is driven like that it becomes he will be lost and bewildered and confused he won't even know where the steeds are taking him and therefore great loss will come to him he will lose the memory of the self and with that there is great perdition 
On the other hand, if he holds the reins and the senses and decides where it should go, where it will go is based on the directions of the Rathi, where the Rathi wants to go. So you have the full image that you have the five senses. Greater than the senses is the mind. Greater than the mind is the buddhi, And greater than the buddhi is the great self. So, senses, nothing is to be abandoned. Senses to be controlled by the mind, mind by the buddhi. Buddhi itself must be at the service of the great self. So, how to do that? Very simple. It says that our intelligent will has uh, two possibilities within it. Gita is immensely practical. So, what are the two possibilities? One is outward and downward. So, outward is driven by the senses. Every sense contact, every action, it reacting all the time. Oh, this happened, so there is a reaction. We react on even the looks of people. Forget about looks, words, everything. We react. So, when we react thus, we are being outward. Based on appearances. When we react, we are driven outward. Lower, downward, when we are Pulling ourselves down to supposing somebody is angry with us. How would the mother say, if you start vibrating with the same anger, then the adverse force has succeeded. It may have occupied one person, but you have been dragged down to the same level. So your response should be a calm, collected response. Not that the person is angry, so you also start getting agitated and start you know, reacting. To fear, if we start vibrating to fear, the intelligent will is bewildered. It goes down, it forgets God, it says, oh my God, death is imminent before me. What can God do? It may even say that God has abandoned me. And yes, because it takes that attitude, it plunges downward and opens the doors to every kind of thing. So these are the two movements of the, uh, the, the first movement of the intelligent will, where it is drawn to the surface and it gravitates down. So there is a very interesting incident it actually happened uh, to somebody and uh, you know when we are going in a car for instance and you see a truck or some car coming from the opposite side which you think is going to hit you and mother explained this very beautifully with this same uh, example and I have seen this happen in somebody's life what is the natural tendency oh my god you project what is going to happen you are killed most likely this is the outward projection. You see an event and you anticipate that event and 99% you are becoming instrument to precipitate that event. Other movement is inward. Ma, Lord, that is another movement, inward. So though it will come very clear, near, it's quite likely they will pass away with a little scratch, with a little... Uh, problem, little bit of you know damage, and even if it there is an actual collision, you may just be sa- you will be saved, and you may escape with very little injuries. Why? Because you have made this movement. I have even interviewed some people who were saved in Upahar cinema tragedy, and people who survived. At least I know some of them. They all at the last moment suddenly you know uh, whoever they had turned to, these people were all turned to Krishna. So they said we abandoned ourselves to Krishna. They survived. One among this family of seven which died, only one, was the one who was worried about the child. The child survived. But this lady died because she was her consciousness was all the time about the child. So, first movement is outward and downward. Second is inward and upward. So, what is the inward move, shift? 
that before reacting to anything, step back and look at it, how important it is. What you are going to really achieve through this anger or pushing things aside, you may need to do it, but you must do it in a very calm, collected manner, not through any of the lower vibrations of hatred, anger, fear, etc. Even in that movement of slaying, the Gita would say, have compassion. So this is the upward movement. What is the highest poise from which you can act? And the mother once describes that there are three poises, attitude that I can take. She uses the word poises with regard to people. One is where she takes that poise of falsehood, it has to be finished. She speaks of that. And then she says, the second is of uh, a kind of compassion at the human suffering and pain people bring to themselves. Third is, she says, it is grace without any questions. Whatever people may do or not do, it doesn't matter. And she says, that's my most natural poise. Where she just gives grace. She doesn't like, you are good, bad, why you are there, oh, there is suffering, because you are the one who chose the wrong attitude. She says, no. None of that. It's an unconditional grace which acts. It doesn't take anything into consideration. She speaks of these three poises. The first is the lowest, where she just destroys the very, that, you know, whatever uh, movement is there. And she says, her admonitions, if you really, though they are graces, yet, even though it's a grace, some of them can be very strong. Somebody who is not ready to bear them can completely feel bewildered. You know, Amal Kiran, when he was against the mother's car, he had put one of his leg there and was leaning on the back side, rear side of the car. And mother came and gave him a tight slap. Suddenly, what happened? He didn't do anything. He said, when you are on the battlefield, can you afford to be unconscious? It's mother's car. You are leaning upon it with your leg put there. What kind of state you must be in? As if, you know, somebody is like a hero. And Amal Kiran notes that it shook me initially. Somebody would say, what's wrong with it? It's a material object. You are doing nothing. There was somebody who was, who was sitting with both feet pointing towards the picture of Shurabindo. And the mother scolded that man. Don't you know? Don't you know means you are supposed to be an Indian. You don't know how to be before the master. So this was one one poise. The second is where she understands they are doing it out of such ignorance. It's compassion to pull them out, explain to them all this. Third is where she says, it doesn't matter, whatever, this is human world, there are no errors, no mistakes. So this is how the divine acts in this world. And one has to become an instrument of that grace. So the Gita speaks about all this inward and upward movement of the discerning intellect or the intelligent will. So, it means to be turned within in a remembrance of the divine. That's where the yoga takes this new aspect. He brings in yoga. Matpara. Me, you meditate upon me. That's how the six chapters toward the end he says. Be devoted to me. Think about me. In your mind you should be full of me. Turn within and turn above. And when we do that, then we are truly liberated. So this is the first aspect of the Gita's teaching where it teaches the intelligent will to learn to restrain the senses and the mind and to direct them only at the behest of the higher 
intelligent will and that intelligent will itself turned towards the divine in the sankhya it ends with this in fact in sankhya the intelligent will is part of nature it is the purusha which withdraws the consent but how does the purusha withdraw the consent what is there in purusha which withdraws the consent what makes the purusha at one level feel its reflection in prakriti at another level suddenly it withdraws it doesn't explain it just says the purusha has to become a witness but what is that faculty so there we see the gita that though buddhi and shurbindo says the same thing though buddhi is a formation of nature it agrees mano buddha ankar it's a formation of nature and yet it is the highest possibility in nature and therefore one must use this intelligent will to turn within an upward through this the purusha extracts itself out so while it is caught in nature there is a tool given to it that look if you take this tool you can there is a key dropped inside <laughs> handed over to man apply this key apply this key so that you can come out of this great term and this the gita calls as samadhi says samadhi is not about a trance in which you forget about the world shubhendra says that is a special condition but the gita's definition of samadhi is not that gita's definition of samadhi is a man who stays in this state of tranquility inner tranquility and felicity undisturbed by all these outer events in a state of inner equanimity such a person is in samadhi naturally arjuna says you are telling me all these things that very difficult why are you telling me now <laughs> how can i practice all this now <laughs> so the gita assures him practice a little even swalpa little bit it will liberate you from great fear swalpamasya dharmasya just practice a little bit of it it will liberate you from great fear so this is the advice of the gita the counsel of the divine master to all of us that if you practice this kind of separation you will be released inside from many of these things suffering so unlike the buddhist way which is about eightfold path buddhist way comes very close to sankhya using a certain kind of another principle the gita advocates a very simple way while engaged in action just learn to step back turn within turn upward and before acting take the counsel of our own highest self whatever is accessible to us and that action dedicate to the divine that's all that it says so we will read some lines i am for i get tempted to this speaks um okay defines yoga in a very interesting way the gita so it says the sankhya also is a yoga but it proceeds by knowledge it starts that is to say by intellectual discrimination and analysis of the principles of our being and attains its same through the vision and position of the truth in practice it means if you keep getting angry at people's anger at some point you say it is such a futile useless exercise <laughs> how is it helping you so if you are thinking of that you are practicing actually sankhya without knowing it it's a form of yoga you realize it's meaningless you try it then you can realize something at yet greater level this is about the bad side of it the good side how much ever you explain the fellow doesn't understand so again you realize that it doesn't help because he is bound by his nature 
Though the Gita will explain that much later, how Nietzsche binds us. So it says that the Gita insists. Okay. Huh. Yoga, on the other hand, proceeds by works. It is in its first principle karma yoga, but it is evident from the whole teaching of the Gita and its later definitions that the word karma is used in a very wide sense, and that by yoga is meant the selfless devotion of all the inner as well as outer activities as a sacrifice to the Lord of all works. Offered to the eternal as master of all the souls, energies and austerities. All the field, inner and outer. Later on it will expand on this. Thought, feeling, everything is an action. See, it is so different from the western idea of uh, goodness. That is manners. You should be well behaved. You may be very well behaved. And yet you may sport an artificial smile to cheat people. It's not about being well-behaved and well-mannerly. It's about being inwardly in a state of goodness, in a state of truth, in a state of love, in a state of harmony. So that's exactly what the Gita teaches us, that yoga proceeds by work and it uses the entire inner and outer field. But what we have to do it, it is selfless devotion of all the inner as well as outer activities as a sacrifice to the Lord of all works. This action, this thought, this feeling I dedicate to you. And with love, devotion. And then that activity is taken up by the Lord and He is responsible for the results because it is offered to the eternal as master of all the souls, energies and austerities. Yoga is the practice of the truth of which knowledge gives the vision. That's why knowledge is important. So He resolves Arjuna's dilemma. I am not saying two things. I am not speaking of the way of sannyas as a means of attaining knowledge. I am speaking of tyaga, wherein while doing works, you have to what we have to do tyaga of of the ego and the desire self. That is the crux of the whole teaching. And how to start? Later on, it will elaborate nishkam karma etc. But renounce these two things. Don't act under the impulsions of the ego. And for the sake of fulfillment of desire. So if we can remember this. So act as an offering to the divine. Based on whatever our highest state of buddhi can show us at a given point of time. And dedicate it to the eternal. Now if we practice it. The knowledge will begin to awaken within us. So it teaches tyaga. Renunciation and not sannyasa. Asceticism. And its practice has for its motor power a spirit of illumined devotion. So there is in it bhakti. But it should be illumined devotion. See the Gita has anticipated how people are going to become fanatics and fundamentalists. In the name of God they will commit the worst crimes. So it speaks of illumined devotion. Of calm or fervent consecration to that which knowledge sees to be the highest. It leaves that that. That highest may be Krishna, Rama, the one self, Shirobinda and the mother, dedicate to that. What a vast and Catholic spirit in the Gita. And then there is, um, this is what we read, but worth reading again. For evidently there are two possibilities of the action of the intelligent will. 
it may take its downward and out outward orientation towards a discursive action of the perceptions and the will in the triple play of the prakriti this is what happens most of the time look at it simple discussion it starts from maybe whatever and ends up with food ends up with gossip ends up with newspaper discursive intellect there is no focus even of what we are really talking about to this degree our intellect is discursive or it may take its upward and inward orientation towards a subtle peace and equality in the calm and immutable purity of the conscious silent soul no longer subject to the distra- distractions of nature in the former alternative the subjective being is at the mercy of the objects of senses subjective being is the self it is at the mercy of the objects of the senses that life it lives in the outward contact of things that life is the life of desire for the senses excited by their objects create a restless or often violent disturbance a strong or even headlong outward movement toward the seizer of these objects its extreme tendencies possess i want to possess it outwardly seizer of these objects and their enjoyment and they carry away the sense mind as the winds carry away a ship upon the sea and where it can go to watch ditch or abyss it can fall in what whirlpool the mind may get caught it is both dangerous and frightening to see that the mind so the gita is taught us what you are not supposed to do if you get drawn into that sense mind this is what is going to happen the mind subjected to the emotions passions longings impulsions awakened by this outward movement of the senses carries away similarly the intelligent will which loses therefore its power of calm discrimination and mastery that is the difference between love and attachment incidentally love is a beautiful inner state it can express itself in countless ways but when it is only about senses trying to possess an object then love becomes the dirtiest and ugliest that we can ever imagine subjection of the soul to the confused play of the three gunas of prakriti so what happens one suddenly one is driven by rajas i'll do it i must do this i must do that to have my object of desire after some time there is exhaustion or when you hold it you realize it's not giving me the joy so there is tamas or this is the sattva awakening for some time telling you no 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 this is not the approach what is the use again one is driven by the rajas again the tamas so that way one keeps on rolling within the wheel eternal entangled twining and the wrestling ignorance a false sensuous objective life of the soul oh if you ask people how was life like oh it was wonderful i you know i went there i saw this i saw that ask a person who is awakened what was it like he will give a very different description same thing pondicherry oh pondicherry was so wonderful you know nice wine nice food shops it was so nice only crowd was a little more weather was a little hot this will be the description of the sensuous man driven by desires ask somebody who is living in the subjective inner being he say oh, samadhi was so wonderful so peaceful i felt 
because that one is you are driven by outward the other is where you sense that inner touch enslavement to grief and wrath and attachment and passion are the results of the downward trend of the buddhi the troubled life of the ordinary unenlightened undisciplined man those who like the vedavadins make sense enjoyment the object of action and its fulfillment the highest aim of the soul are misleading guides you use the word guides there are people who say that doesn't matter eat drink and be merry that's life is about that see misleading guides the inner subjective self delight independent of objects is our true aim and the high and wide poise of our peace and liberation therefore it is the upward and inward orientation of the intelligent will that we must resolutely choose with a settled concentration and perseverance he gives us the method settled concentration and perseverance the mind will again and again turn away bring it back it will again go away bring it back vyavasaya we must fix it firmly in the calm self knowledge of the purusha the first movement must be to thoroughly get rid of desire which is the whole root of the evil and suffering and in order to get rid of desire we must put an end to the cause of desire what is the cause of desire the rushing out of the senses to seize and enjoy their objects that is the cause of desire it wrongly believes it's a ignorance that if i get it outwardly i get it you may get it outwardly and it will be a corpse that's it so that's not the movement joy is not banned but not this way true joy is the joy of the soul and when it is in that state it can enjoy everything we must draw them back when they are inclined thus to rush out draw them away from their objects as the tortoise draws in his limbs into the shell so these into their souls quiescent in the mind the mind quiescent in intelligence the intelligence quiescent in the soul and its self knowledge observing the action of nature but not subject to it not desiring anything that the objective life can give it is not an external asceticism the physical renunciation of the objects of sense that i am teaching suggest krishna immediately to avoid a misunderstanding not the renunciation of the sankhyas or the austerities of the rigid ascetic with its fasts his maceration of the body his attempt to abstain even from food that is not the self discipline or the abstinence which i mean for i speak of an inner withdrawal a renunciation of desire and then he says this cannot be done perfectly by the act of the intelligence itself by a merely mental self discipline it can only be done by yoga with something which is higher than itself and which and in which calm and self mastery are inherent and here comes that final word of these first six chapters and this yoga can only arrive at its success by devoting by concentrating by giving up the whole self to the divine to me says krishna for the liberator is within us but it is not our mind nor our intelligence nor our personal will they are only instruments so you see in the first six chapters we will see there is knowledge yoga of the intelligent will there is karma tyaga and not sanyasa and this bhakti 
consecrate it finally to me. So we see all these three seeds which will be developed. This is the sense of the phrase, he must sit firm in yoga, wholly given up to me. It's not sit like this. The inner asan in yoga. But as yet it is the merest passing hint after the manner of the Gita, three words only which contain in seed the whole gist of the highest secret yet to be developed. Yukta sita matpara. If this is done, then it is possible to move among the objects of senses, in contact with them, acting on them, but with the senses entirely under the control of the subjective self. So this highest secret um, he reveals as, you know, Sarvadharman Parityaja, but this is the kernel. Start with this. And then he says, what happens when you do this? You escape from the duality of positive and negative desire and calm, peace, clearness, happy tranquility, Atma Prasad will settle upon the man. The clear tranquility is the source of the soul's felicity. And it is this to which the Gita gives the name of Samadhi. So Arjuna says, sir, wonderful. But tell me how does that man act? How does he speak? Is it that he will speak only Sanskrit? Or is it that he will speak very good English? How will he act? Is it that he will not eat anything? Is it like he will always wear a particular form of dress, a particular color of dress? How does he, this such a man look like, act, speak, etc.? The sign of the man in Samadhi is not that he loses consciousness of objects and surroundings and of his mental and physical self and cannot be recalled to it even by burning or torture of the body, the ordinary idea of the matter. Trance is a particular intensity, not the essential sign. The test is the expulsion of all desires. He is a free man inside. Their inability to get at the mind and it is the inner state from which this freedom arises, the delight of the soul. So he says this sign is inward. You cannot know by any outward sign. This, oh, he is sitting deep in meditation, absorbed in trance. After, on a particular day, he will open his eyes and some, no. Arjuna is a karm yogin, fighting the great battle, of real battle, not just inner battle. But he is the master. That's how Sri Krishna trains and teaches him. Arjuna, voicing the average human mind, asks for some outward, physical, physically, practically discernible sign of this great samadhi. How does such a man speak? How sit? How walk? No such signs can be given. Nor does the teacher attempt to supply them. And see how far-reaching this is. Till today, within India, we talk of Gita. And the moment somebody comes in a saffron cloth, we say, Oh, Guruji, aage. One has to just put a Guruji before his name. And if you can put little more epithets. When somebody asks the mother that this, this um, life of Shirobindo shall be put, this sort of life of Shirobindo sounds so bland. Shall we put uh, seer or Mahayogi? Mother said, No, 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 only Shirobindo. No, no, no. They are limiting him. Siyar Shri Aurobindo, Mahayogi Shri Aurobindo, Shuddha Shri Aurobindo. Only Shri Krishna. 
You don't, it sounds very odd. You know, suddenly you feel him distanced. A sign of yoga is inside and nothing in outward. No such sign can be given. For the only possible test of its position is inward. And that equality is the great stamp of the liberated soul. And of that equality, even the most discernible signs are still subjective. How do you know the equality of the soul? Equality is the great stamp. A man with mind untroubled by sorrows, who is done with desire for pleasures, from whom liking and wrath and fear have passed away. He is not afraid. There is no particular liking. Oh, people who flatter me, they are very good people. Oh, today a politician has called me, I must go there and you know, so nice to have a photograph. No such thing will be there. Wrath, anger, fear, all this pass away from such a person. Such is the sage whose understanding has become founded in stability. He is without the triple action of the qualities of the Prakriti. He acts through them, but he is above them. Trigunatit. Fixed in yoga, do thy actions. Having abandoned attachment, having become equal in failure and success, for it is equality that is meant by yoga. Action is distressed by the choice between a relative good and evil. What a wonderful language. Distressed. Should I do this? This is good. This evil. The fear of sin and the difficult endeavor towards virtue. This should not be sin and virtue. Compassion, yes. Divine will, yes. Love, yes. But not, oh, if I do this, this is a sinful act. I will rot in hell. If I do this, my name will be written among the virtuous. That should not distress the choice. But the liberated who has united his reason and will with the divine, cast away from him, even here in this world of dualities, both good doing and evil doing. For he rises to a higher law beyond good and evil, founded in the liberty of self-knowledge. Such desireless action can have no decisiveness, no effectiveness, no efficient motive, no larger vigorous creative power? Question mark. Now imagine, if somebody just misses this question mark and quotes the Gita. Shabindu says, you mean to say that such an action will have no force, no motive, no vigorous creative power? Not so. Action done in yoga is not only the highest but the wisest, the most potent and efficient even for the affairs of the world. For it is informed by the knowledge and will of the master of works. Yoga is skill in works. That's what is meant by yoga, karma, sukhashlam. But all action directed towards life leads away from the universal aim of the yogin, which is by common consent to escape from bondage to this distressed and sorrowful human birth. Again a question mark. Sri Krishna says, not so. The sages who do works without desire for fruits and in yoga with the divine are liberated from the bondage of birth and reach that other perfect status in which there are none of the maladies which afflict the mind and life of a suffering humanity. And that status is the Brahmi Stiti, which the Gita speaks of. Thus, finally, this first part ends. Such Subtly unifying Sankhya, Yoga and Vedanta. And he says this is the Nirvana, Brahma Nirvana. Thus, subtly unifying Sankhya, Yoga and Vedanta is the first foundation of the teaching of the Gita. 
It is far from being all, but it is the first indispensable practical unity of knowledge and works with a hint already of the third crowning intensest element in the soul's completeness, divine love and devotion.